Our sermon text is Daniel 3, so if you'll please turn there. Hear the word of the Lord. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered at the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks was not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. We pray that we pray that as we as we approach it, that you would speak. Um, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word in faith, and then that we would we would seek to apply it to our lives, and that we would seek to respond in obedience. That we would be hearers of your word and doers. Thank you. Your word is eternal. Your word is powerful to change us. And so if we need to be changed, we pray that you would do that by the power of your word and the power of your spirit. If we need to be encouraged or challenged, we pray that you would grant us what we need, even if it's not what we want. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I almost prayed for that sound to stop. So. <laughs> uh, we are in the, uh, right at the front end of our series through the book of Daniel. That'll be taking us all the way until the 1st of December. Um, we're in the fun part of Daniel right now, right in the middle of it, where we're starting to get into the depths of some of these narratives. Daniel 3, uh, it's been said, is, is not only one of the most popular and well-known stories in the Bible. Daniel 3, it might be the, the best constructed story in the Bible. It's, it just may be the best story. And I do believe Daniel 6 is excellent as well, Daniel in the lion's den, but there is no story like Daniel 3. It is the story of stories. Uh, for a little bit of background, uh, just in case you haven't been with us, this is your first time encountering Daniel in a while. Uh, Daniel and these, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are, they are Jews. They are from Judah. And uh, the people of Judah have been brought into the Babylonian Empire. The, the nation, the empire of Babylon had, has conquered Judah. They conquered Jerusalem. And they brought out some of the people and brought them back into Babylon. So these men are living as exiles in the land. God, he sent his people. We learn at the very beginning of Daniel, God was not, you know, his hands weren't tied. He wasn't handcuffed. He was sovereign over their uh, journey into exile. So he sent his people into exile. He allowed King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to conquer Jerusalem. 
And what we learn, especially as we consider uh, what comes before Daniel in the testimony of Scripture, we learn that the reason that the people of God are in Babylon, the reason that they are now exiles, is because they have failed to keep the covenant. God made a covenant with his people, and if he would be their God and they would be his people, he would be faithful to them as long as they are faithful to the covenant, as long as they are faithful to, to the law. And the people failed to keep up their end of the deal. They, they failed to, to obey the law. They failed to obey God. And what we see as, as we really start to unfold that a little bit more is that at the very heart of, of their failure to keep the covenant, at the heart of the Israelite disobedience is idolatry. As you read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, what you see is there would be good kings and there would be bad kings. And a king was considered a good king as long as he led the people to worship the Lord. And a bad king would be characterized not only by his evil actions, but by leading the people to worship idols. So covenant keeping was all a matter of worship, all a matter of allegiance. It was all a matter of not only keeping uh, all of the law, keeping the Ten Commandments, but especially the first two commandments. There will be no other gods before me, and do not set up an image and worship that image. Well, you can imagine, if idol worship was a problem in the promised land, if, if idol worship was a problem in the land that God himself had given to his people, a land that they, he had brought them to in miraculous ways, then surely, surely God's people here in Babylon, the land of idols, this pagan culture where they are being conformed into its very image, surely they would continue to fall deeper and deeper into idol worship. Now, as we consider Daniel 1, we start to see some, some measure of hope. You have these young guys, like Daniel was really young, and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were really young. And what we see in Daniel 1 is their commitment is to God above and before anyone and anything else. So you start to see hope that these men are not going to fall in line with their ancestors. They are going to return to the Lord. They are going to remain faithful to the Lord. They are not going to worship these idols. They are going to worship the one true and living God. And then last week, the king had this crazy dream. And Daniel comes and he reveals the dream to the king. And in part of that dream, the king dreamed of this massive statue, this massive image that is destroyed by this tiny stone. And as Daniel reveals the dream, he says, this statue in part reveals your glory and your kingdom and then this succession of kingdoms, but the kingdom of God will last forever. The kingdom of God will reign and all other kingdoms will bow or be crushed before it. And, and King Nebuchadnezzar responds with praise. He responds with, with what seems to be repentance. He says in, in Daniel 2, verse 47, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And so the king is praising this God of Daniel. And then right at the beginning of chapter 3, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Made an image of gold. It's almost like he had the dream and Daniel reveals it and he says, oh, I'm the gold? I'm, oh, that's, that's actually a really good idea. Maybe I should just construct a statue for myself. And he builds this massive statue at the beginning. But the issue of Daniel 3, even though we always emphasize the courage of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we, we emphasize the salvation of God, his saving power. The issue in Daniel 3 is worship. It, it's, it's worship. 
Who is worthy of your worship? And that's the question I want you to to begin reflecting on. That's the big question today. Who is worthy of our worship? Now, notice, I'm not asking you, who do you worship? Or do you worship? Do you worship? Because even the most secular person in the world worships something. The question before every single person on the earth is, can the object of your worship bear the weight of your worship? You worship something, but can the object of your worship, can the thing that you are worshiping bear the weight of your worship? And, you know, as we look back at this in this context, we look back and this was thousands of years ago and we see this image set up and they're, they're worshiping it. And we recognize that in some parts of the world that idol worship still happens where they build these statues, they build these images and they worship and they bow down to these images. And we look at that as Western people who are civilized and we think, well, we would never, we would never do that. We, we, we would never worship idols. That's just silly. That's, that's pagan. That's, uh, you know, we've, we've advanced. We're, we're, we're far beyond idol worship. We would never fall into that. Well, theologian John Calvin, if you're familiar with him, he, one of his most famous quotes, he said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Okay, the human heart is a factory of idols. Within you is this, this factory, this industry that can pump out idols at a rapid pace. Okay, where you can take any good gift that God has given and make it into a God. You, you can take anything in the created order and invert it and put it in the place of the creator. Um, we're each tempted toward idol worship. We each make something, something, or someone the ultimate thing in our lives. That, that's the question. If you want to know what you worship, what's ultimate? Not important, not what's important, what's ultimate. It's the end. If I lose it, I have nothing else. If I lose it, I might as well die. It, for a lot of people, it's, it's money. Some, for some people, it's power. For others, it's family. For some, it's ministry. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. All, all the things that I mentioned, they're not bad things. But whatever is the ultimate thing in your life, that is what you worship. You will live for it, you serve it, and if necessary, you will die for it. So as we, before we get into to Daniel 3, maybe you could write that down even. There, there's a place in your liturgy guide to take notes. You can do it in your phone. What's ultimate? Don't show anybody else. Don't worry. No one's going to look. Don't look at anybody else's paper. But, but what's ultimate? What, what do you think about more than anything else? Whenever someone asks you a question, how are you doing? What's, what's the topic of the conversation moving forward? You know, what are you talking about? Is it related to work? Is it related to family? Is it related to sports? What, what's ultimate? What's, what's the thing that you feel like if you lost it, your life would not be worth living? The question that Daniel 3 forces us to ask is, is that one thing, whatever it is, is that one thing worthy of all of our love, all of our service, all of our time, and our devotion. And is the one thing, if it's not God, if it's not God, is it worth all the love and service and time and commitment that you give to it right now? In Daniel 3, God's people are faced with this dilemma. Who is worthy of their worship? They are being called to worship. And they have to ask themselves, who is worthy and how worthy are they? You see, so far in the story, they have been faithful. 
They had been faithful. They had been willing to die in both chapters. In Daniel 1, they were willing to die. In Daniel 2, they were willing to die. Here in Daniel 3, it ramps up. The the threat in Daniel 3 is fulfilled. Okay? They, They are about to be tested. Do they actually love and serve the one true and living God? Or has the, even the, their religion itself become an idol? You know, you think about it. You think about it in Daniel 1 and in Daniel 2. They're going to remain faithful to the Lord. And there's always that possibility of, of death. In Daniel, 3, in Daniel 3, it is very clear. Bow down and worship that image right there when you hear. Everything's so physical. When you hear this sound. You hear the trigon, whatever the trigon is, right? <laughs> James said trigon like four or five times. Like, okay, the trigon. Hmm. Um, but when the trigon calls you to worship, you bow down and you worship that image. And if you don't, if you don't, you will be tossed into that fire right there. We will do it. It ramps up. And so now they got to ask themselves, well, you know, we can still remain faithful to God. He's not really telling us to stop worshiping God. He's just telling us that we also have to bow down and worship that image. So, you, you know, we can keep our lives and still remain faithful to God. We'll just, we'll just bow down to that image. It'll be, it'll be fine. They're tested. Is, has their religion become an idol? It's, it's one thing to refuse to bow before a pagan idol, but it's quite another to refuse to bow to that idol if the consequence is certain death idolatrous hearts cannot remain faithful in Babylon. They can't. If God's people are going to continue to worship idols, they will not remain faithful to God in exile. And for us, nominal Christians will not remain faithful in our culture. If you're a Christian, just because. Just because. Just how I was raised. It's part of my culture as a good Southerner, you know. I love football, I love sweet tea, and I love me some Jesus. You know, just part of your culture. If that's it, if that's it, and then one day you're threatened, okay, well, unless you do this, and the this is violating God's word, we're going to kill you. That's when we find out. It's in that moment you find out, is this real? Is, is the one you're worshiping God and is Worshiping him worthy of your very life? Or has even Christianity itself become an idol for you? So who or what are you worshiping and can it bear the weight of your worship? We're going we're gonna to walk through the story. We're just going to walk through. There are four big uh, parts of the story and we start with the king issuing a call to worship. In the first seven verses, King Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue. He organizes this ceremony to commemorate his kingdom, to consolidate worship, and then he issues this decree to guarantee that the people will do as he says. So, okay, first, the the king builds a statue. So so what we see, it says he builds a statue that's made of gold. So the statue could have been made of solid gold itself, but it's 90 feet by by 9 feet, and so it's more likely that it was a wooden statue that was plated in gold, but but regardless, the point is it's a a valuable statue. It is huge, okay? It's 90 feet tall. It's 9 feet wide, um, and and we're we're not exactly sure what the statue represents. I mean, he doesn't really tell us. It, it could be that Nebuchadnezzar takes an image of one, of one of the gods that they worship and he sets up this image and it just represents one of their gods. 
Okay, that, that, that's entirely possible. It, it could have been, but probably less likely, it could have been a statue of King Nebuchadnezzar himself. So it could have just been a depiction of him. That, that wasn't overly common in that, in that culture, but it's possible he could have done that. Um, it's possible the image could have been something else. We're not exactly sure what it looks like. We know how big it is, we know what it's made of, but we're not sure exactly what it looks like. But it could have just represented the Babylonian Empire itself. Um, what we know is that King Nebuchadnezzar is on a power trip, okay? He is after his glory, he is after his power, and he has just shown himself in chapter 2 to be a very insecure leader, a very insecure ruler, and he has been threatened by a dream that he's had, and so he wants to make sure that no one else is going to threaten his reign and his rule. So he builds this massive statue. And then he doesn't just issue a decree. He organizes this ceremony. And dedication ceremonies were really typical uh, in this culture. But, but he, he has this ceremony with all of his government officials. They all come as they're dedicating. It's a ribbon-cutting ceremony for the worship of you know, this statue. And, and they're all there, and they have, they have the musicians there. And as we have a call to worship, you know, every single week, they had a call to worship, you know. It's when you hear this music, when you hear this music played, you come and you bow before this statue. So it seems here that what he's wanting to do is to commemorate his rule, okay. This is the statue that glorifies the great and glorious King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the same time, he brings the religious aspect into it. Not only will you recognize how great I am, but you will worship me. You will worship what we have here, our culture, our kingdom. You will worship our gods. Whatever it's meant to represent, it is meant to be worshipped. You come and you bow before this statue. So he's wanting to take all the peoples in the land and consolidate their worship of one thing. And you can't help but King Nebuchadnezzar is wanting himself to be worshipped. It's, it's, it's almost as if he's learned of this great and powerful God, and he said, well, if there's going to be a God in Babylon, I want it to be me. If a God is going to be worshipped in Babylon, it's going to be me. I mean, we've got all these gods anyway. Why can't I be the one who is the greatest among them? And so he calls everyone to worship him. Well, then Nebuchadnezzar does issue a decree, okay? It's, it's a decree of death, Look at verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, everyone, everyone in the kingdom, you are commanded that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music. So it's like, you know, they didn't even list all of the instruments. They listed them about 100 times in this passage, but they didn't list them, you know, anymore. Every kind of music. I wish they could have just said that. When you hear every kind of music, we get it, okay? We get the point. Um, but when you hear music... You are to fall down, wherever they are, right? Where, whatever you're doing, you know, you're, you're you know, talking with someone, they hear, and you hear it, oh, we got to stop, you know, we got to stop, and they go and they bow before the, the statue. You, wherever it is, you bow before it. Um, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So it's clear there, right? It's, it's not referring, you are to worship the gods that the image represents. It's you are to worship this statue, that statue. You are to worship the image. So whatever it represents is not made clear here that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And then in verse six, here's the condition. Here's the condition. Because, you know, you can say that. You can issue a decree, you know. Come and worship the Lord. Come and worship if you don't, we're going to kill you. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a little different. So he adds this wrinkle. He adds this condition in verse 6. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall 
Immediately. Immediately. You're not going to have a trial. You're not going to get, you know, have the opportunity to share why, give your reason. Immediately, you'll be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And I love verse 7. It's like, therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, uh, uh, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image. I bet they did, (laughs) you know? It's like, if you don't worship the image, we're going to throw you in a fiery furnace. We good? Play the music. You know, and then just boom, everyone hits the ground. Everyone hits the ground. Well, I don't want to die. Sure, I'll bow before this thing. Um, you got to think, too. Who was this decree for? Who's it for? Because it's nothing for Assyrian peoples who may have been in Babylon to worship another god. What's, what's another god? You know, they're already, they're already polytheistic. They already worship a number of gods. What's another, you know, sure, we'll bow before that one. Babylonians, they're polytheistic. I mean, you know, sure, we'll, we'll bow before it. Egyptians, Egyptians could have been in this camp. I mean, you know, they're polytheistic. Sure, well, no. This decree is for the Judean exiles because they believe in one true and living God. And they claim to worship one true and living God. And so he says... You bow before that image. It's a test. He's testing their allegiance to himself. He doesn't care about the image and what it represents. He cares about their allegiance to himself. Will they worship me too? Will they give their allegiance to me too? I know they're committed to their God. I want that same kind of commitment to myself. Um, Also, After everything that unfolded in Daniel 2, the God of the Judeans posed a serious threat to Nebuchadnezzar. He's already witnessed his power, and he's heard of what's going to come, what's going to happen one day, how great and glorious their God is. Now, as we consider this decree, we need to to be careful. Nebuchadnezzar is not forcing them to abandon the worship of their God. He's not saying, now you worship this image, you no longer worship your God. He doesn't care. They can continue worshiping God. They're free to do that. They can continue worshiping God. They just also have to bow and worship the image. So they're free to worship God as long as they worship the statue. It's almost like the king offers them a compromise, I'm going to, you give a little, I'll give a little. Go ahead, you're free to worship him. Worship your God, just worship mine too. Just worship mine too. Um, he, he definitely feels threatened, but it's not just by God's power. He's also threatened by God's people. These people just showed me, they've just shown me that they are so committed to their God that they're willing to die for him. Let's put that to the test. Let's put that to the test. Let's, let's, let's up the ante a little bit. And so what he's wanting to do, Nebuchadnezzar wants to cool that commitment. He wants to cool it. He wants to temper it a little bit. And he does it by heating up that furnace. You see that furnace over there? You still so committed to your God? We'll see. He's tested. Um, now, you may, again, this may seem and feel so distant to you. But think about it for a second. Think about how we are tempted toward idol worship. Think about one example. One example. Not, you may not struggle with this, but one example. Your career. 
Think about your career. Think about your job. It's not wrong to work. It's good. It's holy. Uh, we, we should. We should work. It is good. It's a good thing. God calls us to. But worshiping your career doesn't demand you to stop worshiping God. Okay? It, it doesn't. It doesn't. It allows you to have that freedom. You're free to worship God in your free time or on your day off. You know, most of us, a lot of us, we don't have to work on Sundays. Right? You, you don't have to work on Sunday. You can go. Go. Like, have your religion. You know, be, be free. You can worship God. Um, but when your career is an idol that you worship and, and not just a part of your, your commitment to the kingdom of God and seeking to live out, you know, your calling under his rule, the devotion of your heart will be torn. You may worship God but you give your life to your job. You may worship God on Sundays, but you give all of yourself to advancing in your career. Your thoughts, your plans, your conversations, they center on your career. Now you go to church on Sunday and you worship. You go to church on Sunday and you worship, but your life is all about your job. It's all about your career. It's all about advancing. This mixing of worship is called syncretism, okay? And we only think of syncretism when it comes to religion. We think of someone trying to, you know, be both Islam, mixing elements of Islam and Christianity, mixing elements of different religions and trying to, you know, mesh them all together and, and that's your religion. But syncretism invades our lives in other ways as well, where we reserve Sunday or we reserve a certain part of our day for God, but the rest of it we live for ourselves, the rest of it we devote to our one ultimate thing, whether it's family or your job or money or power, whatever it is, that's what we're really worshiping. We are prone to worship God on Sunday and something else the rest of the week. That's what that image represents. That's what that statue represents, the something else. You're free to worship God. You're free to worship God, but you worship this too. We are called to worship our idols every single week. That's what Nebuchadnezzar wants of these Judean exiles. You can worship your God, but you also have to bow before my statue. Okay, so the king calls them to worship, but secondly, the Judeans, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they faithfully resist. All right, we see that in a number of ways. Okay, first, in verses 8 through 12, we see them defy the king's decree to obey God's decree. All right, so at the end of verse 7, it seems, and this is why the story is so good, it seems like even the Judeans have worshipped the statue. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image. Okay, like the Judeans, the people of Jerusalem, they are in this group, it, or so it seems. And then, then we learn in, in verse 8, these Chaldeans, these jealous co-workers, they come forward and they accuse the Jews. And they say, oh, king, you live forever. Um, king, you remember that decree that you made where you said that when the music is played that everyone's supposed to fall down and worship the image? Well, oh, and by the way, if they don't do it, remember what happens? They're supposed to be cast into the fiery furnace. And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 I remember that. Okay, well, there are some Jews that you appointed that aren't doing that. 
They're not bowing before the statue. They're not bowing before the image. They're not worshiping as you told them they are to worship. So they're accused by these jealous rivals in the government, which, you know, tells us that not only were they privately worshiping God, but they were publicly refusing to worship the idol. They were publicly refusing to bow down before the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. They were openly defying the king's decree. Because in order to obey the king's decree, they had to defy their God's decree. And they refused to do that. They refused. They, they lived their lives first and foremost under the rule of God. The, the second commandment, the second commandment of the Ten Commandments trumped the king's commandment. Okay? They were going to obey God before and rather than obeying the king when obeying the king meant they had to disobey God. So, again, what we see here is that these men are not just openly defying the king because he's the king. They, they serve in his government, you know? They, they serve at his pleasure. They do a lot that the king asks of them, but they refuse to do something that the king asks, even, even though he's the king. If what he's asking forces them to disobey God. So they defy him. They refuse. And so the king learns about this. When the king learns about this, of course, as we've seen from this guy, he has a hot streak. He is furious. So he demands that they be brought in. And so what we see is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they come and they come before the king and they are questioned. And as he questions them, he gives them two things. First, he gives them an opportunity, okay? He gives them an opportunity to refute the accusation because he says, is this true? He doesn't just believe the, these uh, jealous Chaldeans, you know, at the beginning. He's like, is it true? Is what they're saying true? They had the opportunity to deny it, you know? You know, my word against yours. No, that's not true. That's not true. We're bowing down before that statue. I don't know what these guys are talking about. That's not true. And, but even more than that, he gives them a second chance. He defies his own orders because he, he, he you know, has found favor with these Jews, he defies his own. What did he say? He said, if I find anyone who doesn't bow before the statue, they will what? Immediately be cast into the fiery furnace. And he goes against his own orders. He says, well, I'm going to give you a second chance. If you'll bow, if you'll bow before the statue now, then everything's going to be good. But as a reminder, this is your last chance. If you don't bow before that statue, I am throwing you in that fiery furnace. They're threatened with death if they refuse again to worship the statue. So now it's even more real. It's one thing to do it on your own. Now they're in the presence of the king himself who can snap his fingers and send them to, to their death. You, you want to bow before that statue now? I heard that you haven't bowed before the statue. Please tell me that's not true. Oh, it's true? Okay, here's your last chance. Bow before that statue. I feel like a parent, you know, you're just talking to the kid, right? You're like, all right, this is, this is it, okay? This is the last chance. And then they refuse, and you're like, oh, man, I don't have time for this. Like, oh, one more chance, though. One more, all right? Um, but he does. He, he gives them a second chance. So they have another opportunity, another opportunity to, to just, bow before the, just bow before the image. You don't have to mean it. You can imagine how they would be tempted to compromise. You don't have to mean it. It doesn't have to be real. You know, just getting on your knees, bowing before it, and then move on. Apologize to God later. You keep your life. 
I mean, you know, you're, you're a Jew in exile. You need to be here to remain faithful. You are the remnant. And then in verse, verses 16 through 18, they answer the king. And I love how they answer the king. Look in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. There are three marks to this confession. The first one's contentment. Look how content they are. We have no need to answer you. We don't have to answer you in this. We're good. We're good in our defiance of your, of your decree. We're okay. No matter what you do to us, we're going to be okay. They were content to remain faithful. They, they weren't tempted. They weren't really tempted by this second offer. No, no, no. You know, we don't have to defend ourselves before you. These guys are making these accusations about us. Uh, you know, we, you're asking if it's true. You're giving us another chance. We have no need to answer you. We're not changing, okay? We're, we're not going back. We're going to remain faithful, and we're good with that. And we're good with that for two reasons. First, and this is the second mark, they were confident. The first reason we're content is we're confident in our God's power to save we know you're powerful, O king. We know you're powerful. We know that you can throw us in that furnace before we finish the sentence. We know that. But we know that our God is infinitely more powerful than you. And if he wants to save us, he could cause you to drop dead before I finish the sentence. If he wants to save us, he can do it. He can do it. They are fully confident in the Lord's power. And again, they're thinking back to the history of their own people and how, the God, or how God continues to deliver them, continues to respond to his people who are, you know, at best, borderline faithful. And he continues to be faithful again and again and again. And he has shown himself faithful so far in their time in exile. And he's like, we're, hey, king, we're good. We're good. Do whatever you want. Because if God wants to save us, he can do it. He can do it. They're fully confident in God's power. And then the third mark of this confession, their courage. They're able to be content because they have so much courage that no matter what happens, they're still not going to compromise. They were resolved to remain faithful to God and his ways no matter the outcome. Be it known to you. I love it. I love the drama in that. You know, he says in verse 18, hey, you know, first and 17, God can save us. He can save us from you. He's more powerful than you. And then in verse 18, but if not, if he chooses not to save us and we do go and we die, be it known to you, O king, this bold assertion, be it known to you, we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the golden image that you have set up. The king's plan backfires on him. He, he actually likes the Israelites. Okay? He's found favor with Daniel. He has set these men up in high positions in his own government. And his own government officials are furious with him because of it. He likes them. He just is threatened by God's power and he's threatened by their allegiance to God. So he just wants a little bit for himself. You know, just prove to me. There's no way in the world he thought these men would actually go and die 
before just falling down and worshiping the image. King Nebuchadnezzar took everything from these Jews, but he could not touch their faith. He could not touch their hope because, and this is at the heart of his anger, he can't threaten their God. He can't threaten their authority. He cannot touch him. So what these Judeans are doing here, they did not fear a man who could destroy their bodies in a fiery furnace. Make no mistake about it. They didn't have some special revelation from God. Hey, you're going to be okay. I'm, listen, let me give you some, just a little vision of the future. You're, it, the fire's not even going to hurt. It won't hurt. You won't even be burned at all. You're going to be completely unharmed. And then you can laugh in the king's face. I'm, I'm about to save you. And then they went into this meeting with that knowledge. You know the knowledge they had? We're not worshiping the image and we're going to die for it. They knew they were going to die. They knew it. And they weren't afraid of him. You know why they weren't afraid of him? They weren't afraid of a man who could destroy their bodies in a fiery furnace because instead they feared God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. They feared God. They, they didn't fear this guy. They feared disobeying God's law and what might happen as a consequence more than they feared disobeying this king's law and what would happen as a consequence. They're content, they're confident, they're courageous. And then you, you expect, okay, here's the Lord. He's going to jump in now. He's going to save them. Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He changed. All right, they're no longer his homeboys anymore. Okay, I'm done with you. I'm done. I'm fed up. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. You know why? Because in the back of his mind, he's like, I keep hearing about their God's power. I'm going to make sure, make sure that these guys die as soon as they're thrown into that furnace. No way of escape. Absolutely no way of escape. Verse 20, And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. You keep reading it thinking, The Lord's about to step in. He's about to step in. He's about to intervene. He's about to rescue his people just before they get thrown in. Boom, something crazy is going to happen. And then verse 21. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, verse 23, just in case you missed it, verse 23, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. It's, it's like a buzzkill in the story, you know? You kept expecting them to be rescued. And it it goes through this elaborate and slow process, right? They're tied up. They're bound up. They're they're getting, they're prepared to be tossed in. And then, you know, as they're about to be tossed in, the men who are tossing them in, they themselves are burnt up. And just so you're clear in verse 23, they fell bound up into the fire. 
they actually do die, or so it seems. At this point in the story, the only outcome we can be certain of is death for the three Judeans. So far, this is a martyr story. They actually did die, staying faithful to their God. What we need to see at this point is that faithfulness to God does not always protect us from suffering and death. Okay? They weren't rescued at the last minute. They actually were thrown in. We, we need to remember, faithfulness to God does not always protect us from suffering and death. Sometimes it causes suffering and death. Sometimes your faithfulness to God will mean that you lose something like your career. Well, if God is the one that you're worshiping, if he is the one that you're living for, you will be, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, content to lose everything if it means, if that's what it takes to remain faithful to God. They, they were faithful to the end. Well, then we have the rest of the story. Okay, so God miraculously rescues his people. Look at verse 24. And I love the way that, that Daniel tells this story. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. So he sees something that freaks him out. He's blown away by it. He declared to his counselors, um, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? It's like, it was just those three, right? Did I actually accidentally get real mad on the way and grab some other poor Babylonian and throw him in too? Or it was, it was three, right? And they answered the king and they're like, true, true. It was three. Yep. We counted. This dude's crazy. You know, just thinking to themselves, like we went through this whole ordeal. He didn't even know how many we threw in. This guy's losing it. Yeah. Three. We threw three in there. And then in verse 25, we answer said, but I see four. I see four. Like, is my mind playing tricks on me? Because I know we threw in three, but I see four men. Not only do I see four men burning, they're not burning to a crisp though. I see four men walking around unbound in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. What do we see? The king sees four men in the fire and he calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to come out. He, he goes to the door and he yells at them. Servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And they walk out of the fire. What we see is that they are unbound, they are walking around in the fire, and they are unburned, they are unharmed by the fire. And we see this fourth figure, this fourth man, who appeared to be divine. Uh, the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, he, he says that this fourth is like a son of the gods. So a question for us, is just to pause for a second, a question. Um, who is the fourth man? Who is the fourth man? And if you've ever studied Daniel before, you'll, you'll know that some people believe that the fourth man is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. That this is Jesus in the fiery furnace. That, that may be true. We don't have enough information to make that as a hard claim. The, the phrase, the sons of God throughout the Old Testament, it refers to angels. So, you know, it's possible it was an angel. It's possible it could have been a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. But whether it was an angel or Jesus himself, this figure represents the saving power and presence of God. God was with his people and God was for his people. So we, we draw three conclusions from this rescue. Okay, what, what we see in this rescue, God is providentially wise 
in how he saves his people. God is providentially wise. He saves his people by allowing them to be thrown into the fire. He doesn't save them from the fire. He saves them in the fire. They are thrown into this furnace, and then he chooses to save them. God is wise in how he saves his people. He is providential over the salvation of his people. He chooses when. He chooses how to save them. The second thing we see is God's presence. As they're in the fire, God is with them. Whether it's through an angel, whether it's God himself in the, in the person of Jesus, God is with his people in the fire. And then finally, God provides, man. He comes and he preserves his people. He protects his people in the fire and from death itself. He saves his people from judgment. He saves his people from death. And here's what we see. The, the big point Here's the point. The point that was true then, the point that's true now. Because of his love for and his power toward his people, God alone is able to save them from judgment and death. That's the point. The way the story is told, the intentions of King Nebuchadnezzar heating up that furnace, binding them up, there was no human way for them to be saved. Even the people who threw them in, they burned up and they weren't even supposed to get hurt by the fire. The only way for them to be saved is for God to save them. The only way for you to be saved from your sin against a holy God is for God to save you. You can't do it on your own. We are in an impossible situation where our hearts are so sick with sin that we cannot ever possibly earn his favor through enough acts of obedience or good works. We can't do it. God has to do something for us. So what's the picture for Israel? As Israel reads this, as, as Daniel and these men experience this, what did this mean for exiles in Babylon? It's this picture that God continues to be with his people in exile and will one day deliver them from it. It represents this covenant faithfulness, this refusal to worship idols, and this, this resolve to remain faithful to the one true and living God. God will be faithful to be with them in exile and to deliver them from it if they are faithful to the covenant. God hasn't abandoned his people, even as he judges and disciplines them through exile. Well, and then what about for us? As we look back, thousands of years in the future, as we look back on this story through the lens of the cross, what we see is that this scene, this story, as they're suffering in the fire, as they're rescued from the fire, what we see is that one day God will save his people. And he will do it through suffering. Okay? Consider how God saves his people. In Jesus, God dwells with us. He takes on flesh. He comes and lives in this sinful fallen world with us. And then Jesus suffers for his people. Jesus faces the flames of God's righteous wrath so that we who deserve it may come out on the other side completely untouched, completely untouched, completely unharmed because we have been rescued by the one, the only one who can rescue us. What's the response then? Look how Nebuchadnezzar responds. 
another another response of worship he says in verse 28 blessed be the God of Shadrach Meshach and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God Nebuchadnezzar blesses God. Nebuchadnezzar actually issues this crazy decree. He issues a decree that says anyone who speaks against God is like torn limb from limb. This dude just loves violence. You know, he's like, hey, don't speak against our God. Now, if you do, we're going to tear you apart. Okay, like he's always on the extreme end of things. But he does recognize God is all powerful and his true people will remain faithful to him even to the point of death. So what we see in Daniel 3 is that God alone is worthy of worship. God alone. God alone can bear the weight of your worship. God alone is worthy of being that ultimate thing in your life. Because you'll never lose him. You'll never lose him. You can lose everything else in your life. The world can take away everything that you have. And if you're worshiping and you're committed and you're centering your life on the one who is eternal and the one who loves you and the one who has called you, then you'll never fall apart, not ultimately, not ultimately. The one who is worthy of your worship is the one who is still standing, still providing, and still sustaining when you lose everything else. The one worthy of worship must be the only one able to fulfill what he promises. That is our great and glorious God. So my encouragement to you, seek out whatever could be an idol for you. What is it? What are those things that creep in from being important things to ultimate things? And cast them aside and commit yourself, body and soul, to the God who saves and delivers his people, the only one worthy of our worship. Let's pray. God, you... Like Nebuchadnezzar, you call us to worship, but you call us to worship you. Nebuchadnezzar called the people in Babylon to worship himself or his kingdom or his gods because he was threatened by your power. But Nebuchadnezzar could never fulfill what he promised. Nebuchadnezzar could never bear the weight of the worship he was calling for. Because his kingdom passed away, but yours never will. So I pray that that you would help us as your people to remain faithful even under fire, that you would help us to remain faithful even as we face temptation and and even as we we battle our own hearts, which, which continue to pump out new idols for us to worship. Remind us, you are the only one worthy of our worship. You are the only one able to save. So humble us before your greatness. And help us to build our lives on you and nothing else. We ask all this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.